Well, good morning. We're glad you're with us. Grab your Bible. We're going to be in Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, and that's our gift to you. You can keep that. Um, again, book of Daniel. Uh, if you don't know where to find it, look at your table of contents. That's one way. Or if it's the Bible you're grabbing in front of you, it's page 826. We'll make that kind of easy. 826. And today we're going to talk a little bit about theology and maybe a theology you've never heard of, but when I describe it, you'll be like, ah, I'm aware of that. It's called somebody else theology, right? It's the uh, who's going to serve in the kids ministry? Somebody else. Uh, who's going to greet new folks? Somebody else. Uh, who's going to be a foster parent? Somebody else. Who's going to make a difference in, in human trafficking? Somebody else. Who's going to share the good news with, with my lost friends and family and neighbors around me? Definitely somebody else, right? Unfortunately, it's kind of pervasive, and, and I've felt it for sure. Like, oh, I see a need. Somebody else will handle that, right? Right? Somebody has something going on in their life. Somebody else. The problem is so many of us in the American church are stuck on this someone else theology that a lot of things go undone. You know, the history of the church, and I mean the history of God's people from the beginning of time, has been marked by people who say, here I am, Lord, send me. Uh, those words were said by Isaiah. Isaiah uh, was a prophet, um, and he had a vision where, where God, there's God with some angels, and God says, who shall we send? Who shall we send? And, and Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And he does it very humbly, I mean, in this vision that he has. But he says, here I am, send me. And then we have Mary. If you remember Mary, this, this teenage girl who God says, will you, will you bear my son? Here I am, send me, and will you watch him die, right? Go through history over and over, people who say, here I am, send me. And that is the opposite of someone else theology. The idea of here I am, send me. And here's, here's the big point. You know, a lot of times I try and hide the point, so you have to discover it through the sermon. Here's the big point. God in his sovereignty has chosen primarily to work through his people, not around them. You know, we talk about this a lot here, that we're a, a, a cruise ship, not a battle, or we're, we're a battleship. Whew, forget that. We're a battleship, not a cruise ship. A lot of times we go to church because we like the music or, or the, the pastor's entertaining, whatever it is. Instead of going to join a mission, we're more like a battleship going somewhere to get something done. We have a great purpose God has given us. And all of us have a, a part to play in this mission. So how about you? Have you said, here I am, send me? Or maybe today, I, I hope, and my prayer is that you might catch a vision for that today. And your answer at the end might be, I don't know what it is. But I'm going to look at, like, I'm going to try and figure out what God has for me. We're going to be, again, like I said, in Daniel. And we are, the series we're calling Living as Exiles, right? Exiles, just, just passing through because we as Christians really are exiles. We're called aliens and strangers in this world. And we're here for a little while, but we're not really citizens of earth. We're citizens of heaven. But wait, we are also citizens of earth. And so there's a tension of how do we live as exiles, Jesus' followers, God's people, while on this earth. And there's a tendency for Christians to, to hide, right? To build up walls because we know the world is going to be against us. So we build up these walls, right, to protect us, right? We, we keep our kids away from those bad kids or whatever it is, and we, and we hide. But yet we know our mission isn't to hide, but it's to go make disciples, go make a difference. And so how 
can we be faithful, right? How can we be faithful and make a difference in the world while not conforming? So in Daniel, this is what we've seen so far. Daniel uh, and his three friends, they're youths, they're probably teenagers, uh, they were conquered, Jerusalem is uh, Judah, all of Israel was conquered by Babylon. The Babylonians came in, they killed old men, it says old men and virgins, meaning they didn't spare anybody. They just came in and, and killed. It was a brutal, brutal attack. They took over, they burned down the temple, and then whoever was left, not quite everybody, but most, were then taken to Babylon in exile. Right? And so Daniel is one of those. Daniel and his three friends, they're taken to exile. They're brought into the king's palace because they are good-looking, they're intelligent, and they're going to train them up to be good Babylonians. They give them new names. They give them the best food to eat. They're going to try and conform them, again, into Babylonians so that then they can kind of go to the rest of the Jews and say, hey, life here is good. Let's do it this way. And there's the parallel we see with us today, that we really are exiles in a world trying to conform us. I mean, desperate to make us look like them and accept what they accept. And so our situation is very similar as God's people in exile. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick it up a little bit later in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. So We've skipped over some. Last week, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, with their bold obedience, their willingness to, to act in faith, not fear, right? They were, they were sent into the fiery furnace because they would not bow to an idol. And th their response to that was, our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to honor him. I mean, that, that's faith right there. So we see so far in the book that happened. Uh, Daniel and his three friends get elevated. They, get, they become you know, one of the king's wise men or magi, if you recognize that word. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. And so they, they join this group of basically counselors to the king, advisors to the king. The king has a dream that he can't interpret, and he's kind of bummed about that. So he goes to his his advisors, right? his magi, his wise men, uh, magicians, and says, interpret the dream. They can't. So he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to kill you all. So Daniel comes back to his three friends. like, oh, we need to pray to get the interpretation of this dream so he doesn't kill everybody. Um, God gives Daniel the interpretation. He goes back to the king, tells him the interpretation of the king. The king says, great, elevates Daniel and his three friends. That's already happened. We're skipping over that. Now there's another dream. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, this Babylonian king, the one who led the charge on Judah, right? The one who was behind the murder and captive of the Israel people has another dream. And this dream, he sees a tree, a tree big and strong that gets torn down. And I'm going to read to you Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Again, Daniel comes to him and interprets this dream for him. Daniel 4, 19 to 26. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Before I go on, just real quick, this is a guy who basically killed probably most of everyone Daniel knows right? Took them into captivity. Here's how he responds to him at first. The, the, the interpretation of the dream is not good for the king, but Daniel says, I wish this wasn't for you. This, that's a little bit weird, right? He says, uh, verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven 
and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, and under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy man, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that is a, a pretty brutal prophecy God is making for this king. But this king is unique. He is uniquely evil, right? right? He is king of Babylon, which really does kind of run the whole world at that time. And they were obviously brutal. They were murderous. They were idolaters. They were very sexually immoral. I mean, go down the list. But look at how he speaks. Okay. He speaks with respect. I find that part alone interesting, that he wants what's best even for this king. But before we even get to that, look at the beginning. 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Two names. Why? Daniel is his given Jewish name. That's the name his parents gave him, Daniel. Belteshazzar is the name uh, the king or, or the head of the eunuchs gave him. It is a name honoring their gods. It is a clear sign right here of their goal to conform them. We're going to change your name so you're going to be a pagan Babylonian like us worshiping new gods. Your God lost, right? We took you over. Our God wins. You now serve our God. But Daniel refuses to take that name. And it's interesting as you go through, a uh, little secret, by the way, part of this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is calling him Belteshazzar. Daniel refers to himself as Daniel, meaning he is holding on to his identity as God's son. He is not conforming to the world around him, yet he's living within it in a unique way. But he will not give up his identity. That is huge. It is possible to be in the world and make a difference while not conforming. While not conforming. Why is it Daniel can have such confidence? Why is it Daniel can live this way in exile, seeking what's best for the king in that kingdom? Well, we talked about it the past couple weeks because Daniel was a man of God's word. Daniel knew what God had said to him and to the rest of the exiles living there in Babylon because there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote a letter from God to the exile saying, here's my instruction for how you live as an exile there. And so I want us to read some of that. Um, so turn to Jeremiah 29, which is page 732. See how easy we make it? Page 732 
and we're going to look at Jeremiah's instruction. The reason we're doing this is this is what was going to be in Daniel's mind. How could Daniel live the way he is? He knows God's instruction. He's a man of God's word. Daniel, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. And again, that is page 732. And Jeremiah writes this, from God to his people in exile. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother of the, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon. To Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it said. So, just real quick, that places it in history, right? This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. This happened in history at a point in time. Jeremiah wrote this letter to the exiles. Now, real quick, there's some still in Israel. Jeremiah is one of this, but not very many. Most were taken. And again, the goal, as we're going to see, was that some were going to come back, but most didn't. Kind of keep that in mind, though. Most would not listen to this instruction. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners whom are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in, the name, in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. Come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Those were the instructions, right? Their exile was to be temporary. 70 years, he says, then I will visit you. In 70 years, this is going to be done. We're going to go back and I'm going to restore the kingdom. That would happen 70 years later. But if you read in the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, not very many return. Meaning a lot of those taken into exile became Babylonians. They were conformed. They were lost. Maybe you've heard of the, the lost 10 tribes. A, a great number were, were lost. They conformed to the world around them. But uh, some made it. This would be called a, a remnant. Uh, this is an interesting thing. If you look through all of history, it seems like the tendency of humanity is to go away from God. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, even, even in religious circles. So, right, Israel was called by God. They were built 
they wandered from God. But within that, God kept a remnant faithful to him. As time goes on, you see it over and over. God's people wander. They, they, they go away, but there's always a remnant. Right? The church formed in the first century. Things were good. Things were moving along. And then it, it got kind of twisted, right? It got warped. The Catholic influence became more of a workspace. They set up priests and a pope that are not in line with God's word. But even within that, as that went, God kept a remnant. And so we celebrate the Reformation, right? Where, where Luther and Calvin and, and others said, no, we're coming back to what's true. The whole time, there were people faithful to God's word, but there's always a remnant. Guess what? We have the same thing going on right now. Uh, I have trouble even referring to us as evangelicals because what evangelicals believe as a whole is not in line with God's word, right? There is still a remnant, but, but within. And so I'm hoping that that's us and other churches in town. We have great churches here, you know, other bodies of believers that are part of that remnant, but, but we are a remnant and God works through that remnant. What does he tell them here? Uh, through Jeremiah, right? He says, uh, build homes, grow families, engage in business, do life, and do life well. And pray for the welfare of the nation to which you are sent. What? <laughs> they just killed everybody we knew. They took us into captivity, and we're to pray that they'll have welfare? That doesn't make sense to me. Now note, this is written to the Jews in exile in about 600 BC. This is not written to Christians today. So it's not written to us, but it's written for us. Uh, you see that one verse in there, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a purpose. Oh, you've probably heard that before, right? Oh, yeah. Not written to you. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was written to the exiles then. He said, in 70 years, I'm gonna bring you back. I know the plans I have for you in this life, and it is to restore you back to Jerusalem. Christians that use this today, this is God's message to me. No, it's not. Because you're not a Jew in exile in 600 BC. But we have other promises. So that's just the wrong one to quote. We have plenty others in the New Testament that we can look at. God says, no, my plans for you are good, right? I have a plan for you. I, the future is gonna be great. We just can't use that one. I, sorry, that's kind of one of those bugs for me that we read scripture in context. But he gives them that encouragement, right? He's going to restore them. But his encouragement to them while they're in exile is to seek the welfare. We have the same instruction. Uh, I'm not going to read them for sake of time, but you can write these down. 1 Timothy 2.2 and Titus chapter 3. If you want to look those up, we are given the same instructions to pray for peace where we're at, to pray for our rulers and those in authority. We're called to do the same thing as those exiles were called to do. Not because they were called to do it, because we have that instruction as well. So you see the, the parallel there. We're called to do the same thing. God's people are called to be a blessing to the place they live. Now, the idea of peace, you know, that sticks out. And we see that in the New Testament in the verses I just referred to. Pray for peace so that when things are peaceful, they're peaceful for you. You know the best way to have peace as Christians? Shut up and sit down. Right? If, if we just shut up and stay here, nobody's going to give us a hard time. The problem is we have others' instructions as well. Others instru we have other instructions as well. Go make disciples. We're called to be a witness. So we're not called to hide. We're, we're supposed to pray for peace and welfare, but we're also called to go and speak with boldness the good news of Jesus. There's a tension there. <laughs> there really is, because as we do that, oftentimes that does not create peace. And so we have this tension as Christians between 
seeking peace, while also being bold witnesses for Christ. Can I be honest? If we're going to, you know, live, let God live through us, right? If we're going to seek for how God might use us, it's going to get awkward. Um, we uh, went to Honduras. One of the, the things we did one day was we split up. We went to different homes um, and, and prayed with the people in those homes. That was awkward, especially because I don't speak Spanish. Um, we had interpreters there, but there was one we went to, and it was, I mean, it was beautiful. We walked in a line going down this beautiful green field and, and corn and all that. It was just gorgeous. Um, the pastor of the little church there was kind of leading us down to this home. It was actually a group of homes, three or four homes. Um, and we're walking down. Half of us get through. He's got his dog with him because he always has a dog, a great dog. Dog's getting a fight. Um, and unlike here, nobody breaks it up. Like the dogs start going and we just step back and watch like, Oh, he won. Great. And of course, you could see the pride on his face like my dog won. He always he told, he told me later, my dog always wins. Um, but they, so they just let the dogs fight. Anyway, we move on. We go into this house where a man had been stabbed. And then they had opened him up to make sure nothing was messed up in there. He had this giant scar. Uh, and it was his mother who had asked us to come pray for him. So we, we come into this room, concrete floor, two benches. We sit down. It was kind of awkward. Uh, three or four generations in, in that home. Um, luckily, we have Karen Aleman, who was a great translator. She speaks Spanish, so it was amazing having her there. But he comes in, and we sit down, and then, you know, somebody asks the pastor there, and the pastor turns to me. He's like, do you have a message for them? I'm like, I normally prepare for these things, <laughs> right? I mean, it, so it's like, oh. So I grab my Bible, like, surely, you know, and it was it was. Awkward. I mean, it was awkward, and I felt God did give me a message of, of you know, Jesus says in this life, we will have trouble. Um, you're not weird for having trouble, but, but take heart. I have overcome the world. My point is, if, as we go, it's awkward. And I'll, I'll say, I think that's easier there than here. It's more awkward often with our neighbors and family, but yet it is what we're called to do. And so my point with that. As we pray for peace, but we go knowing there won't always be peace. Let me read to you Matthew 5. It's going to be on the screen. 11 to 16. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely to my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." What's he call us? Salt and light. They use salt as a preservative and a flavoring. They didn't have refrigerators quite yet, right? So salt would preserve and flavor, but, but how? How does salt preserve meat? How does salt flavor meat? The salt's in the meat. Salt does no good if it stands over here and isn't put in the meat. His point is pretty clear. We're salt, right? The world is, is the meat. We need to get out there, right? We're, we're a light, our, and our goal as lights is to point to the greater light, Jesus, the one true light, but we're lights in the world. But so often as Christians, and our culture tells us this, hide your light, keep it to yourself. 
Jesus says, no, your light is the one that brings light. It brings life. Jesus is the only way to life. So we let our light shine before men that they might see our good works and possibly be saved. That's what it means. Glorify him when he returns. By the way, part, as I read through this, you know, my heart is like, oh, I'm, a lot of this, oh, go do. We're exiles, go do. The reward is great. That's what he says here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Salvation's enough, right? To know that we're gonna live in eternity with Christ forever on a new heaven, that's enough of a reward. But there's even more rewards. I don't fully understand it. But we're doing these things knowing and trusting that God is good and he's going to reward us for these things. We are salt, we are light. In his sovereignty, God primarily works through his people, not around them. Have we gotten that point quite yet? He works through us, not around us. The Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And by the way, I'm with you to the end of the age. That's our mission, to go make disciples, and then to bring them into this environment where we get to worship. Isn't worship great? I mean, these new songs that we're singing, joyful worship, bring others in. That's our mission. Now, here's a little transition question. Have you ever known somebody that's too far gone? You know who you're thinking about. That person that there's no way God could get. That person that's so selfish, so evil, so vile, God couldn't get them. Maybe, maybe you look at yourself. Maybe you're just here because someone drug you and you're like, you don't know my sin. I'm too far. God can't save me. If you knew the things in my past, you wouldn't share this with me. I'm too far gone. Is anyone too far gone? If anyone was too far gone, who would it be? King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He, he's powerful. He's wealthy. He's got everything he wants. He's ruling the world. He's a murderer, sexually immoral. I, I mean, go down the list. He's got to be too far gone. But yet God works through Daniel and in Nebuchadnezzar's life. God tells Daniel to give this message to the king. And what does Daniel do? He shares the 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 interpretation of the dream. But then he encourages him at the end. Look at, we're back to Daniel 4. Look at verse 27, how he finishes it. This is Daniel's words. This is not the interpretation anymore. This is Daniel. And he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is evangelizing this pagan king. Daniel is telling him the way you've been living is wrong and there's a right way. How does our culture feel about that? Right? Maybe you've heard this. Witness always and when necessary, use words. Guess what? It's always necessary to use words. Yes, we witness always with the way we live, but nobody's gonna know the name of Jesus unless they hear the name of Jesus. Nobody will understand the gospel unless someone shares it with them. And who shares it? God's people. When witnessing, it's always necessary to use words. Again, if I were Daniel, why bother? Um, in fact, I might have, I love action movies and revenge movies. I might have, if I was Daniel, I might be like, how can I take down the king, right? How can I sneak in and, and, and murder him and conquer this or whatever? That's not what Daniel does. Daniel seeks the welfare and then, again, witnesses to him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar goes off, it says for, for seven points of time, seven, it's probably seven years 
maybe seven months, but probably seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And afterward, here's what happens. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word of the Lord was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Have you ever seen somebody humbled, but they refuse to be humbled? Somebody proud, and they're brought low, but they refuse to repent, they refuse to turn, right? Daniel had already encouraged him, humble yourself, turn, and he didn't. But now, look at the king, the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reasoning returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. My goodness. <laughs> who would know it other than him, right? Those who walk in their pride, God is able to humble. He repents, he turns. Warning to the proud, humble yourself before God does. Right? Humble yourself before God does. This king is clearly converted. In fact, a lot of this chapter is written by him. You kind of have to step back and look at how did this happen, right? Daniel is God's messenger to the king. All this happens after that. You know Daniel and the king spent a lot of time together. You know Daniel basically discipled the king after this, taught him God's ways, and then they worked together in even writing this book. Uh, turn back just Daniel 4, the first three verses. Daniel 4, 1 through 3, real quick. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Here's the point I want to make. God can save the unsavable. God can save the unsavable. If you think it's you, you're wrong. If you see this other person in your family or whatever it is, you think they're unsavable, you're wrong. God is able to humble. God is able to save. 
Again, God does the saving work. It's not up to us to save anyone, but God uses a messenger. God uses Daniel. God primarily works through his people, not around them. It doesn't mean God only works through his people, right? God was doing a work in Nebuchadnezzar, clearly, but yet he used Daniel. And then what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar? He becomes a great voice for God, right? He, he says all nations. I mean, he's, right, he's telling, basically, this is the king of the world at the time. He's telling everybody, honor the one king, the one God, God most high. He's converted, and he becomes an evangelist as a pagan king. That's kind of cool. God can use anyone. He cannot just save anyone. He can use anyone. Again, what's the big theme in the book of Daniel? It's God's sovereignty. God is over all, right? He can raise up kings. He can put kings down. He can allow Jerusalem to be conquered, to, to judge them. He can put Daniel in this perfect spot. God can do all things. He's in complete control. And here you see his sovereignty, and he has a plan. Again, we read this right now in the year 2023, and we look back, wow, look at how God worked. Then we go to the New Testament, and we read the Gospels uh, and Acts, which are also narrative, telling about what God did. It's like, wow, God used to work. You know, right now, I, I think it's still being written, right? I think there's probably angels writing down all, God is still at work, just like then. It's the same God, same mission. Jesus is coming back. He's still at work. Meaning, what are the stories being written about us, right? When we get up there, we're going to read the stories of what God did through people we've never heard of. Are we going to be part of those stories? I sure hope so, right? Jesus tells us to be salt and light. You know, what's our application as we look at this? I think it's twofold. Two applications. One, no one's too far gone. Not you, no one else. Meaning, today is a day of repentance for you. If you thought you were too dirty, guess what? You're not. There's probably someone worse in the room. No one's too far gone. Repent, turn to Jesus, receive forgiveness. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he died, to cover every single sin. Turn to him, receive forgiveness, and find life. But then number two, God will use anyone. Anyone who says, here I am, send me. Anyone available, God will use, even the person sitting next to you. God can use anyone. Are we willing to say, here I am, send me? Right? Are we willing to say yes? We're not all called to everything. Right? Not all of us are called to be foster parents, but some of us are. Not all of us are called uh, to go to Thailand next year and go across to Laos and build some homes. But some of you are. Not all of us are called to be missionaries, to be whatever it is. Go down the list. But all of us are called to something. What is it you are called to? God has a plan to use you. Here's a deep question. Can we miss God's plan for our life? <laughs> you don't want to answer this one out loud. Yeah, we can. Because God's given us the freedom to choose. God wants to do great things in and through us. All we have to do is say, here I am, send me. We have to be available. Now, I know a lot of people might read about Daniel, Mary, Joseph, who's coming up, and all these who, who gave their life to God young, right, as teenagers. Oh, man, they're used. Like, man, I'm so old. It's too late for me to have an impact. No, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he was quite a bit older. He had been through some things, meaning it's never too late. I, I don't care how old you are. If you're like, man, what does God have next for me? He's got something. I don't know what, but God has something. You don't have to be a Daniel to be used. God will take you at any age and after any sin. If we repent and we turn, God will use us. 
So let's get over someone else's theology. And let's say, here I am, send me. And what is it? Now, last note that I think is helpful. I think a lot of times we think big, right? Like we're going to become second to a king in a foreign land, whatever. Most of what we're called to do is going to be a lot smaller and day in and day out, right? With, with Daniel, we get glimpses of big things, but there was day-to-day faithfulness. In the Great Commission, we're, called, we're told, go make disciples of all nations, go. The real interpretation of that is as you go, meaning you have opportunities already in your life. What are they? Where has God already placed you? What what is our vision? This is our vision for Common Ground Church. We are fueling a movement of God's people, surrendered to his mission wherever he places us. He placed Daniel there. Where has he placed you? Yeah, there might be something outside that that he wants you to go do. Maybe he wants you to go on a missions trip, uh, become a missionary, get into foster care, whatever it is, sex track. There might be something outside he wants you to get into because we need to do those things. But most, it's probably right in front of you. And you might be missing it because we have blind spots. What does God have right there in front of you that only you can do, or maybe not only you, but that God wants you to do? Let me pray. God, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, you do work through us. Um, But God, I, I also thank you that it's not up to us. I thank you that you are the power. You are the one in authority. You are the one completely sovereign. And we just get to join you. God, this, this life that we call the abundant life is one where we're not hiding from the world, but one where we, we endure the tension of living in the world but not being of the world. God, I, I ask right now that you would encourage us as a church, encourage us as individuals. What is it for us? Here we are, send us. As a group and individually, what do you want us to do? We live in Carson City, Dayton, Gardnerville, Minden, this whole, we live here. What do you want us to do here? How can we make this place better? How can we make a difference for you and see more come to you? What is it? Here we are. Send us. Amen. Now we're going to move to worship. And today we're taking communion. We do this every two weeks. Uh, Communion is a time for believers to remember what Jesus has done. Right? We, We take the bread, remembering his body broken on the cross. We drink the cup, remembering his blood spilled for us. Scripture tells us, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. We never move past the cross as God's people. We look back with gratefulness, humility, and thankfulness because that's how we can have life. But then we also look forward. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he's going to restore and renew. That's going to be the new kingdom. We look forward till then. So now as we take it, here's the instructions we're given by Paul. Before you take it, examine yourself. How are you? Do you have unconfessed sin? Uh, Do you have a relationship with a fellow believer that that you need to reconcile? You need to do your part to reconcile that. If so, maybe don't take. Wait. Confess that sin, then take. Right? Uh, Reconcile with that person, or or at least do your part, and then take. I'm going to be in the back over here. Uh, if, If you hear this, you're like, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus, or I'd like to, please come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Um... The way we take it here is there's, there's three stations. It's going to be kind of crowded. We like that um, because worship is not a spectator sport. We engage. We bump shoulders. We rub around. Uh, but here it is. Come, get it at your leisure, and then uh, do what you want. Sit down, pray with who you're with, pray alone, and then take it. Uh, one thing I want to add, I, I know there's, there's some health stuff. <laughs> I've seen people come. There's some health stuff going on. Um, during this time, let me ask you, pray for healing for people in this room right now. 
And as I'm back there, if you're one of those, please come see me. I'd like to pray for you.